Today on episode number 267 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Don Saucier shares about trickle-down engagement. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak. And this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest was introduced to me through my partnership with the Association of College and University Educators, AQ. AQ's courses and community site feature many teaching and learnings top experts, including a lot of the ones that we've had on the podcast before, faculty developers and practitioners to showcase evidence-based teaching practices. And I've been partnered with them for more than three years now, and they send me great guests. And today's guest is no exception Donald A. Saucier, PhD from University of Vermont, is a professor of psychological sciences and a university distinguished teaching scholar at Kansas State University. He's a fellow of the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues, the Society for Experimental Social Psychology, and the Midwestern Psychological Association. His research examines the factors that contribute to expressions of antisocial and pro-social behavior, and his teaching philosophy focuses on maximizing the levels of both teacher and student engagement in the classroom. Don, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. When I first started to read your materials, one of the first things that stood out was your teaching philosophy. His teaching philosophy focuses on maximizing the levels of both teacher and student engagement in the classroom. And I'm only reading part of it, but I I was instantly thinking, wow, this is a person who has done a lot of reflection on his teaching and has really been able to articulate your teaching philosophy. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about what that process has been like for you. Sure. And, and thank you. I, I like my teaching philosophy, too. <laughs> I think one of the things that really impacted my teaching philosophy was me having had a lot of experiences as a student with good and bad teachers. And one of the things that really occurred to me is that some teachers I just could not resonate with. I just couldn't get into their classes and had a really hard time learning their information. But other teachers, it was just so natural. I wanted to be there. I know that they wanted to be there, and they wanted to share their information with me. And when I had the first opportunity to start teaching as a graduate student, I suddenly realized I wasn't prepared to do that. So I very metacognitively kind of went through these experiences and said, you know, what worked for me as a student and what didn't? And there was one professor in particular, his name was Ed Yatarian, and uh, he was a neuroscientist at Colby College where I went to school. And he taught this class at like five in the morning. It was ridiculous. I probably wasn't five in the morning, but it felt like five in the morning. <laughs> and he was talking about the brain. And I'm a social psychologist. The brain isn't really what I study. And he loved it. He absolutely loved it. And I would show up at his class, and I would just be enthralled in him describing function and structure of the brain. And when I became a teacher, I said, you know, that was a course I didn't care at all about. But I was there, and I got through that course because that teacher was thoroughly engaged about that. 
So I started with that realization, and then I started to think more outward. I thought of other teachers that I really resonated with, and they did the same thing. They brought their love for their content into the class. They wanted to be in that class. They wanted to teach me, and then as a student, I get engaged, and I learn too. So over the years, I started to play with this concept of letting my students know that I was engaged. I would explicitly tell them this. I would say, you know, this is going to be great content, this is going to be interesting content, this is going to be important and valuable for all of these reasons, and I love it, and I love that you're here, and let's do this together. And my students responded really well to that. So it was probably, I don't know, five or six years into my teaching career where I said, you know, I'm going to articulate this. I'm going to, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to think about this. I'm going to collect some data on this. And I came up with what we call the trickle-down engagement model. And it very simply says that the engagement of the teacher is going to affect the engagement of the student, which is then going to ultimately affect their learning. So if the teacher is more palpably engaged, the students are going to be more engaged, and then they're going to perform better on their assessments, their exams, or quizzes, their papers, what have you. And also they're going to come to class more because they're having that engaging experience. So this is something that my reflections of having been a student and then my early practice as a teacher developed this. I didn't start out doing this but this was something that became my teaching philosophy over time. One of the books that I read for my doctoral program was by Daniel Goleman, and most people associate Daniel Goleman with multiple intelligence theory. But in this particular instance, he's going into looking at social intelligence. And I'll I'll admit that it was a little bit of a too dense of a book for me at whatever time I was trying to read it. <laughs> so I was going, sure. what's the point? What's the point? What's the point? And, and this might sound cavalier, but you know, when we've all been through stressful experiences, like trying to finish a doctorate, I was kind of like, let's, let's nail this down. What's the point? And the point is that our emotions are contagious. Absolutely. Our emotions are absolutely contagious and the good ones and the bad ones. Mm-hmm. So knowing that one of the things that I think we should do is reflect on why I want to teach that content. I think sometimes We're not as thoughtful about why it is we're including something in our class. Oftentimes what we do is we say, all right, I'm supposed to teach this at this point. Or someone told me that on their syllabus they have this here. Or the textbook has this chapter, and therefore I have to teach that. What I think we can do is we can be a little bit more thoughtful and intentional about whether or not that should be included. And if it should be included, why? And if it's not interesting and it's not important for the topic, then maybe it shouldn't be included. So I really think that what we should be doing is being excited every single day because we're invested in the why that we're teaching. I think sometimes if we're not sure or if we don't think that content is very exciting, then we get a little bit bored with it. Our lectures are a little bit drier. The conversations that we're having are less stimulated, and our students are going to sense that. I think sometimes we think that our students aren't as emotionally intelligent as they are, and they're going to go off our vibe. So if I come in and I'm loving it, I think they're more likely to love it too. But if I come in, I'm saying, we got to get through this. And I've heard colleagues say this, we got to get through this today. I know it's going to be boring, but bear with me. If you do that, you're setting it up for a disastrous class because they're going to reflect that, oh my God, I got to be here rather than, oh my God, I get to be here. I hear you talking about attention and attention between whenever I hear myself or other people talk about covering the material, I know we're in the danger zone of what you're talking about, where we're not going to be as engaging versus so many people have talked about this. But one that comes to mind is Ken Bain. And he writes about instead of the topics I'm going to cover, the questions we're going to explore. 
so many people that have been on this podcast before have talked about really the mysteries we're going to have them solve, the questions we'll explore, the puzzles we'll try to unravel. And to me, that can make me so much more excited because then it's different every single time. And watching the students as they get curious, that, that's, that to me is a way of fueling that energy that you're describing. I, I love that. One of the things about questions, it allows students to be collaborators in the learning. And I think when people go in and they say, I had a great class because I finished all my slides. It's just like you said, that's the, that's the problem zone. That's the danger zone. That's not a good thing. But if you ask them questions, they get to give you answers. They get to think through the processes that you're trying to teach them. Because really, I think more often than not, the content is the vehicle for professional development. So if you want your students to be critical thinkers, you give them content to think about. You ask them questions and you see if they can critically evaluate that. If you want them to apply the information, you ask them to apply it. And by doing this, by using all of these kind of active learning techniques, your students now get to contribute to their education and get to tell you why it's valuable. One of the questions that I love to ask my students is, why did we talk about this today? Why did we learn this? And one of the things that I'm always so gratified to see is they usually give me better answers than the ones I was planning to give them. Because they're so personal for them. And they'll find that nuance, that nugget that they can take away with them that I never anticipated. So I love the vibrancy of a class where you ask questions. You said we should be excited every single day. That's a pretty tall order. Can we behave our way into feeling differently than we do? I think we can. I'm a social psychologist, and a lot of social psychology basically says that we have all of these processes of self-perception and, and social perception and cognitive dissonance and all of these kind of things that talk about the connection between what we do and what we think. And there is a connection. So I think that if you come in and you prepare yourself, and we did a study that showed that award-winning teachers do this, if you prepare yourself to show your engagement, so you come in preparing to say, today we're going to talk about research methods. And the way that I say research methods is a lot of times students don't see that as the most exciting thing that you're going to talk about, especially not in the psychology classes that I teach. But if you prepare yourself to come in and say, today we have the opportunity, right, the opportunity to learn about research methods, because research methods is the toolkit by which we discover information about the human condition, the students look at it differently. If you come in and say, today we get to learn about independent and dependent variables, and we're going to learn about experimental studies, they're going to tune out. But if you're going to say, this is the opportunity to acquire knowledge about the human condition, that's a scripted way to describe why this is important. Now, emotion is contagious. It's contagious both ways. So if you script this statement, and you come in and you deliver it well, your students are going to sit up a little straighter. They're going to lean forward a little bit. They're going to prepare themselves to write. They might even smile. And when they do those kinds of things, it affects your engagement. It makes it easier now to really invest in that information. I think the classroom is an oasis. It's the place that we go to get away from everything else. And I look forward to that every single day, regardless of the topic that I'm teaching. So even if the topic isn't the thing that I love the most, I'm still engaged to be there. And that's something I think that all teachers can do. What happens when we make the work too easy for our students? Oh, easy, easy work does not work well. Students know when we're giving them busy work. And I think that what we need to do is challenge our students. There's a lot of work on optimal experience or what Shinkai High calls flow. 
And what that says is that when students are going to be most engaged or when anyone's going to be most engaged in any activity is when their skills are just barely meeting the challenge. Right? They're having to invest all of their cognitive and emotional and behavioral energy into the task, but they're succeeding. We need to kind of find that flow channel, that channel of optimal experience for our students. If it's too easy, they tune out, and they will do the bare minimum. Now, it's important to understand, they're not doing the bare minimum because of stereotypes about millennials and people don't work hard. They're doing the bare minimum because they're smart. They're understanding that they have a lot of things to do, and if they don't have to invest the energy here, they can invest it somewhere else and maximize their overall productivity. So what we need to do is inspire them to invest the energy in the assignments that we give them. One of the ways we can increase the difficulty of the assignment or the rigor of the assignment in an appropriate way is to ask them to apply it creatively. Don't tell them how to do it. Give them that bounds in which they can be creative and make it valuable for them. Because if it's too easy, they're going to give you something that they didn't engage in. And then, coming back to your engagement as a teacher, you're not going to want to grade. What are some ways that you've seen faculty invite their students to apply something creatively, or you've done that in your classes? One of the things that I love to do is I love to give missions. And the way that I define a mission is I have a social goal. I'm a social psychologist. I teach about things like pro-social behavior. I teach about things like prejudice and discrimination. So give them a mission. I recently gave in my advanced social psychology class a helping mission. So I said, what are you going to do for this mission is you're going to go out in your world and you're going to get others, not yourself, you're going to get others to engage in pro-social behavior. You're going to find a way to apply the theories of social psychology to make others more helpful. And that's all the direction I'm going to give you. Mm. I want a one-page report telling me what you did, what you found, why you thought it would work theoretically, and convince me that you did something theoretically and practically worthy. And they go out and they do a lot of different kinds of things. Some of them create group me fun. Some of them create these social media campaigns. Some of them engage in sidewalk campaigns. I had one student who went and got people registered to vote so that they could help people through their votes in November. So what I think we can do is we can give them parameters and then let them go and apply it in some way that we never thought of. Now, one of the things that I always get a little nervous about is they'll ask me for an example, and I don't like to give an example. Mm-hmm. Because once I say one student did this, then a lot of students will say, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. So some students, particularly those who want to achieve and succeed really, really well, they'll sometimes get a little bit uncomfortable. So what I'll let them do is bring examples to me for feedback. And I think if we're going to provide these parameters, we have to be open to having conversations with our students to optimize their engagement on the assignment. So if you don't want to talk to your students, you probably shouldn't give them creative opportunities. But I think we should. I get so sad. A couple of times a year, I teach a doctoral class. and Primarily, my teaching is an undergrad, but a couple of times I have that opportunity. And I get so sad that it's at that level that I get more than ever, did I do this right? Is this what you were looking for? And I think, oh, gosh. I mean, there's so much unlearning that has to happen there to recognize, you know, I don't, you're at a doctoral level. This is this is where the biggest agency should be shining through. And it's just really saddens me that 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 is not always the case. I think that's really actually kind of understandable because I I mentor doctoral students too, is they're really good at being students. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that good (laughs) students do is they follow directions well. And when they don't have directions, they're just not sure that it's, it's, Oftentimes, they're risk-averse. They're afraid of making a mistake. They're, they're so motivated to succeed and excel, 
they feel like they need to have direction. And one of the things that I think we can do to attenuate that, to kind of help them get through this kind of fear of risk, is give them parameters in which to be creative. So say, I want you to apply these principles to this thing in a way that you like. I've given you two out of three. It's that third one you have to invest. Because I really think that we shouldn't put our students into a situation in which they're too anxious. On the flip side, I don't think it's completely inappropriate to make our students a little uncomfortable in college. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you for that. That's And that's a helpful thing for me to remind myself of, too. And, then, and of course, when you're working on, in this particular program, it's a dual track thing. So they're both working on portions of their dissertation, such as coming up with their research questions, and then their literature review, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of rules around that APA formatting and margins, <laughs> all this stuff. And, and then here I am coming in and trying to have them both, you know, engage with both kinds of follow every single rule to the literal letter. <laughs> and then on the other hand, you know, exercise your agency. I, I, that helps me think about it that way. One of the things that I, I tell my students, because my students sometimes struggle with these creative endeavors too, is I'll explain why I'm putting them in that situation. So I think sometimes we can be more explicit in our intentions for why we're asking our students to do the things we're asking them to do. And letting them know that I want you to become more creative, or with my doctoral students, I want you to become more autonomous and innovative, because you need to make a name for yourself as a scholar. So you can't be a mini-me, and you shouldn't be a mini-me. What you've got to do is you become you, and you get to decide what kind of scholar you want to be, what topics you want to be known for, how you want to be in classroom, what that teaching philosophy is going to be. You get to create that, and that's wonderful, and it's also scary, but it's what you came to graduate school for, or it's what you took my undergraduate class for. So what I'm doing, whether you knew it or not, is doing what you paid for. Is this part of what you talk about when you share about the power of the individual? That's exactly what I mean. I think, and I tell my students this on the first day of my classes, there is nothing more powerful than their voice. And their voice should not be an echo of my voice or anyone else's. It needs to be individual. And I'm going to give them, through my assignments, through my discussions, an opportunity for them to develop that voice. And the voice may come through in writing. The voice may come through orally. But I want them to become their own person. And what that means is they should critically evaluate what I'm saying. They should critically evaluate the mentoring that I'm giving them. Because they need to decide, when I'm done with this, who am I going to be? And I expect, much like I did with Ed Uterian as one of my, my college professors, they're going to look back at their experiences, and they're going to pick and choose in the creation of themselves as a scholar and a teacher. So yes, I think the power of the individual is exactly what I want to nurture in my students, because I want a society of people who know who they are, or at least who can they, they can become, and feel like they have power and autonomy over their own lives. I'd like to circle back to the idea of crafting a teaching philosophy. When you spoke of it earlier, you spoke of the metacognition that you went through and, and formulating that. I almost picture just you wrestling to become the teacher that you are today. L let's talk a little bit about how that writing can show up in a little bit more of a transactional way, but it is the reality for us academics. So it might show up us needing to write something like this to apply for a job. It also might show up for us in our promotion, some kind of a portfolio we need together. What advice do you have for us as we craft that teaching philosophy to something less for our own reflection and to share more broadly? This is a wonderful question. 
I've had the opportunity to you know, apply for jobs a number of times, to go for promotion and tenure, but also to be on hiring committees. And one of the things that I often see is that the teaching philosophies are all the same. People are dropping in buzzwords like active learning. They're dropping in words like engagement. They're talking about that they're accessible to their students. And those are all important, but those are kind of the minimums. Those are the standards you have to hit. What I want to see in a teaching philosophy, and this is how you craft a teaching philosophy, is think about what experience do I want to create for my students in class? So for me, with trickle-down engagement, I think I want to create an engaging experience for me that trickles down to my students and helps them learn. Therefore, when I want to create that experience, all of my practices are derived from that experience. A teaching philosophy for me as an evaluator should give me a sense of what your students experience when they learn from you. So when I advise teachers and when I advise my graduate students for creating teaching philosophies, I think about what is most important, what are your priorities, who do you want to be as a teacher, and that might be aspirational. It might not be who you are now. And I'm not who I was when I was writing my first teaching philosophy. I've, I've grown a lot. I've discovered a lot. And I've made things a lot more cohesive now in my teaching philosophy than I once were. But I want to know, who are you? More often than not, I know that you teach. And I know that you're saying the things you're supposed to say in a teaching philosophy. But I want to see your personality come out. I want to see the things that are important to you come out. And if you can name them. There's a lot of ways that I could name my teaching philosophy, but I wanted something that really kind of nicely encapsulated in a short phrase what I'm all about. So I happened on trickle-down engagement. For me, that worked. But once I was able to do that, I could flesh that out. Now my practices reflect that. My course structure reflects that. What I do on the first day of my class reflects that. And I can revise that. So it was later on in my career where I got more comfortable myself as a teacher and I was more comfortable managing discussions that the power of the individual grew into part of my teaching philosophy. Because earlier on, I was a little bit more afraid to hear what students might say. I was afraid to ask them a discussion question or let them ask me a question that I might not be able to answer. So that's something as I grew in comfort as a teacher that I said, this is something that's important to me. I haven't done it enough. Let's see where this goes. So one of the things about a teaching philosophy or a teaching statement, as we often call it when we're looking at job applications, is this should be a living document. Your teaching philosophy is going to be dynamic. It's going to change as you learn more and you experience more. As I think about the interviews I've been a part of lately, a big thing for me that's important is for people to be able to identify failures that they've experienced as teachers and also to incorporate now how that is reflective of changes they've made in their own teaching. And it's not something that people often feel comfortable with. And so I have two questions for you. It's a little sure. pre preview. <laughs> the first question is going to be just how much do you see people being asked to share about their failures in the kinds of searches that you've been a part of? And then, you know, I'm going to have to ask you about one of your failures. So let's, let's oh, start. Sure, sure. I would say that uh, number one, I'm at a research institution. And what happens is for worse, I won't say for better or for worse, for worse, we frankly don't evaluate the teaching credentials of our applicants as much as the research credentials. And this pains me. I'm always the one asking, what's your teaching philosophy? And, and other people say, yeah, they'll, they'll learn that along the way. Mm -hmm. um, often our applicants don't have much of a teaching history when we hire them to some of the areas of my department, and that makes me very sad. So we don't ask them about those failures as much. And typically, people are very guarded about sharing those failures. Yes, of course. What's happened is we don't talk about our failures that much. 
And it's always kind of astounded me, and now I love these experiences, when I hear teachers that I know and respect tell me when they messed up. Because we mess up, and we grow from those experiences. The worst experience I ever had failing, and I have all range of experiences, the worst one is I actually got a graduate teaching assistant slapped in a class. And I'll give you kind of a setup for this story. I was a graduate student at the University of Vermont, and the social psychology professor asked me to come in and give a lecture about altruism. And the social psychological definition of altruism is that it's selfless helping. It's helping with no motivation that you're going to get anything back from that experience. So I came into a class cold. This was not my class. I had no rapport with this class. I did not know the students, and they didn't know me. And I didn't take that into account. So I came into that class, and I came in firing hard that altruism does not exist. (laughs) And the research kind of showing the existence of the lack of existence of altruism in the social psychological literature is, is tough. We basically defined it stupidly. So rather than saying it's less selfishly motivated, we said it's completely non-selfish. And it's really hard to show that there's no possibility of selfish motivation. So I came in armed with this research that they could tell me, you know, any example, I could come up with a selfish reason for why they helped in that situation that they might not want to admit or even might not be aware of. So I came in and I challenged them. And I'm just shooting down their examples. So what's happening is I'm having these students respond, which is hard enough in a class, and I'm destroying their answers. This is not a great teaching dynamic, right? This is something I, I would never do now. But this come in and I'm shooting them down. So finally, this one student stood up to respond. Now, if a student ever stands up in your class to respond, that should make the bells and whistles go off that something has gone wrong here. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I didn't get this. So the student stood up. And she started to talk through all of the volunteering that she had done and how it is completely not selfish. And my response was, yeah, and I'll bet it looks great on your resume. Uh-oh. She did not respond well. And she started to storm out of the room. Oh my gosh. The graduate teaching assistant tried to intercept her, and she hit him. Oh, wow. And I reflect back on that moment and say, oh, my God, I got somebody hit in my class. And I'll tell my students this. They'll be like, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened. Like, I can't believe that happened. I never thought something would ever digress to that level. But what happened is I learned that's not how you do it. Mm-hmm. So now what I do when I talk about this topic in my class is I let them know, you know, this is a hard topic to show empirically exists. What studies would we do to uh, show that it empirically exists? Because really smart love people it. over the decades have tried and failed. You tell me, based on what we know about research methods and theories of helping and pro-social behavior, you tell me how we can verify the existence of altruism. And I even give them extra credit for the best answer. But I now, having learned this awful failure, (laughs) is I need to respect their voices. I need to respect their pre-existing beliefs. I need to respect their experiences and their worldviews. And in that moment, I decided that I was going to win the intellectual argument because I was more well-read. Being the expert is not the same as being an excellent teacher. And in that moment, I didn't know that. When you were talking about being at an R1, and I can't remember, I don't think we talked about this. I'm at a teaching-oriented institution, so it's very different for us, as you could imagine, although we still don't focus as much on teaching as I wish we did in the hiring process. You were reminding me, though, of the importance when we are applying for jobs or when we're doing promotion of making those attempts to partially mirror what we are seeing 
what's being modeled for us to the extent that we can get that information and yet still wanting to maintain a voice of a unique person and someone who has something distinct to offer. And it's this really careful balance because you don't, you don't want to just parrot what you're hearing and what you're seeing, but at the same time, I, I'm thinking specifically about a cultural acceptance of speaking about failures. And some of the larger, uh, more R1, more bureaucratic institutions, that's just something that would be heresy to speak about versus I feel like some of the teaching institutions, it's maybe a little bit more acceptable to be in a place of struggle. I, I might not be making a fair comparison, but I, I did think that you wouldn't want to volunteer information and go on and on about your failures. If that was something that was culturally, wow, you're completely shocking them. You know, that, that would be something to have in your pocket to talk about if welcomed to do so, but you don't want to necessarily drive and have that be where you start. You know, anyway. Oh, I, don't know I, that... I absolutely agree with that. I mean, there's, there's a difference between being human and being incompetent. Yes, yes. And I think it's, if you can ever follow up a legitimate failure. Now, sometimes when we ask people for failures, they're coached to tell us things that really aren't failures, right? It's like when you tell someone, you know, what's your biggest weakness as a teacher? And they say, I care too much, right? That's not really a weakness. I could see how that could be pitched as a weakness, but I knew that you found the answer that you were comfortable giving and you didn't really want to answer my question. So I think what we've got to do anytime we talk about failure is we've got to be able to follow it up with a question, right? So in this case, what should I have done? And then turn it around. Now, this is going to be safer after you've been hired, right? So when you're looking for mentoring and I I had a class that maybe didn't go as well as I wanted, what would you have done in that situation? What should I have done in there? What could I have thought about? Understanding that it's always easier after the fact to come up with strategies, but on the interview, when I ask someone, you know, what's the, what's the biggest hurdle that you ever kind of went over in class, I want them to tell me a real failure, but then what they learned from it. So how are they going to make sure that that failure doesn't repeat? Because in essence, when I ask that question, I want to know, is this a problem? So if you come in and say, yeah, I wasn't prepared one day, and students asked me questions, and I said I didn't know the answer, and I didn't look them up, that's horrible. But if you say, you know, I came in one day and I just didn't understand how creative my students were, and I didn't know the kinds of questions they would ask, so I spent a lot of time learning to answer their questions, and I came in that next day and gave them the answers, and I let them know that sometimes we get to discover this stuff together. So we turn this into a brainstorming in front of the class activity or an exercise in learning how it is we acquire knowledge in science, how we explore the primary literature, and how we design research questions. So if the failure becomes something thoughtful and something metacognitive, something that they were so uncomfortable with that they did not want to repeat, and that's a wonderful way to show maturity as a teacher. But if you just tell me how you messed up and you don't have anything to follow that, that concerns me. And that's what's so beautiful about your story is that it has that. It's very memorable. I'm not going to forget that part of this conversation for sure. And yet it completely transformed your teaching and is still speaking to you today. It is still alive in you as a teacher today in that what you've turned it back into the questions that you're going to help your students explore. What studies would we do? I just, that's absolutely brilliant. One of the things that I've I've learned, and I, I was an athlete long before I was a teacher, and it was one of those kinds of things where, you know, film study on Monday. So after a football game, you sit down with coaches and they go through the film Mm-hmm. I do this as a teacher. I don't necessarily review the film, but I sit back in my office and I say, what went well today and what didn't? And I think if we're intentional in developing ourselves as a teacher, we try to promote the things that worked and reduce the things that didn't. And most of the time when I think back about it, the things that didn't work as well were preventable. 
I just didn't anticipate enough to prevent them. And you had mentioned a little bit about this climate about discussing failure. We don't discuss failure. As assistant professors, in particular on the tenure track, we don't discuss failure because we're so afraid that that one comment is going to get us fired, mm-hmm. right? That one time where I said, the student said this thing in class, and I didn't know how to respond, becomes that everyone thinks I'm a bad teacher, and then I don't get reappointed or I don't get tenure. I think what we need to do is we need to have a climate and a culture where we have more discussions about teaching generally. One of the things that is most gratifying for me is when I have a colleague on my campus who is a high-level teacher say, Don, I had this issue in class. What would I do? And it makes me feel like less an imposter sometimes. The imposter syndrome is real, and it doesn't go away. You know, we'll sometimes think that we're a phony in a position, and we're going to get found out. But when I had one of the teachers that I most respect come to me and say, hey, what happens when your students are on social media during your class and you can't get their attention back? And you say, oh, my God, I thought that was just me. These are the kind of conversations we need to have more of. I don't think we should hide our failure. I don't think we should hide our attempts to engage other people about the issues and problems we face with our students because we all face them. And it doesn't mean we're not doing our job, and it doesn't mean we're not trying really hard. And it doesn't mean the job's not wonderful. But it does mean that if we kind of collectively barter through these things, we're going to get to better answers, and we don't ask those questions near enough. Part of what you're reminding me of, too, is sometimes we can't do it at our institution. It's just too grave of a risk for us. We don't have that safety. And, and really, can we get better at things if there's zero safety? I mean, that's, then we're not really allowed to experiment. And if you're going to try to get better at something, it, it's better if you're not terrified of then making another mistake. And there's things like the Teaching in Higher Ed Slack channel, which if people haven't heard about before, that's a more private place. Twitter, while it isn't private, it is at least a place where you can get outside of your own institution and make those kinds of connections with people. And then I did even start about six months ago writing an advice column for EdSurge, and I'll put a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to post a question. You don't have to include your name or any kind of identifying information, and that's another way where you can get some external perspective if you don't feel like you can have those conversations internally. And a couple of things I would mention, too, is that a lot of organizations have have Facebook pages and things like that. I know the Society for Teaching Psychology has a place where you can kind of just say things like, and someone did that this week, I'm having a hard time grading attendance. What do I do? And then in a matter of minutes, you'll have 25 people who will tell you what they do. We have, my graduate students and I have an Engage the Sage teaching channel where we talk about our thoughts on teaching and little tweaks you can do to make your teaching more engaging and to deal with different issues with students, for instance. The comment sections of those videos are really good places to ask other people these kinds of questions. The comment you made, too, about we we can't achieve if there's no safety, I think also applies to the classroom. One of the things that we've got to kind of think about is do we provide a safe opportunity for our students to demonstrate their learning and to empower them to use their voices? If we start to empathize with these evaluation concerns, with these concerns about being imposters, it allows us to empathize with our students. I think sometimes we forget that we were students. The only difference between my students and me is that the time I've spent in this field is longer. They are just me at an earlier developmental stage. I'm not more intelligent. I'm not more creative. I'm not more cool. All I am is someone who's been doing this longer. And the anxieties that I have are the anxieties that they have. 
If I don't want to talk about failure, why would they want to talk about failure? If I'm afraid of getting it wrong, of course they're going to be afraid about getting it wrong. So I think empathizing with them in that human experience is important. I also think that we as associate professors and full professors need to understand what our assistant professors are going through. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I try to do more is I try with my assistant professors to share things like, hey, I screwed up and got a student hit. How did your week go? (laughs) And then what we can do is we can have, I think, a more candid discussion. And if a faculty member, if one of my colleagues ever comes to me with an issue, no judgment, let's deal with the issue. And I think it's important that we provide that safe space as colleagues, because if we keep that tenure process very, very mystical, and we try to keep it very mysterious and not let them know what's up with that, of course they're going to be scared on that. I think we make them less scared, we make them more able to achieve, both as faculty and as students. This is the point in the show where we each get to share some recommendations, and I have two today, and then I'll pass it over to you. The first one is that I got intrigued by the idea of using 360-degree cameras in our teaching by watching a woman who teaches in an MBA program. She presented at the Canvas Instructure Conference. I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but it's kind of stayed with me that whole time. I think of 360-degree cameras as what you are used to when you want to check out somebody's house that is for sale, and you can look around the entire room and you can just zoom and go where you want. But of course, this is coming into teaching as well. And for me, I, I we ended up buying what's called a meeting owl. And first of all, it's the cutest little thing ever. It is called an owl because it has little two little owls eyes that make it look like it's looking at you when you turn it on. It kind of looks as similar dimensions as the Amazon. And I'm not going to say the name because I don't want to start activating, activating people's devices all over the world. But the Amazon, A, A I can't even spell, A-L-E-X-A. And it looks about that same size, but of course it's fabric on the outside because it's an entire speaker. And then at the very, very top is a little 360 degree smart video camera. I say smart because if you use it either on its own or if you use a video conferencing tool like Zoom, whoever is talking, the camera automatically goes and focuses on that person because it, it, it's activated by the sound of the voice. And then if someone across the room starts speaking, then it focuses that part of the camera. We're used to that on Zoom if you've used it before because if it hears you talking, it makes your camera show. But in this case, it's a single camera that's able to focus on every part of that room. It's really pretty remarkable. It's also adorable. It's so funny when I carry, I don't have a carrying case for it yet. So if I carry it across campus or if I'm sitting in a room a few minutes early, it always gets all the attention. It's just the funniest thing. It's a very cute device. They also have very cute marketers on April 1st, they said, which is in the United States is April Fool's Day. So apparently it's funny for us to make fun of people by tricking them into things. (laughs) It's not my favorite tradition, but theirs was very cute. They said they had a new children's version of the meeting owl. And then that turned out that so many people were interested in that, but it wasn't a real thing. But they sent out a stuffed owl to people who wanted to receive it. So it was very cute. They have really cute marketers. And then the thing I want to also mention just about video conferencing in general, it's happening more for meetings. It's, it's happening more for our teaching. We also need to up our game when it comes to how we're going to present ourselves in those environments. And I wrote a post 
about some tips for when you are on a video conference, things like being aware of where the lighting is coming from. If you've got light coming from behind your head and there's this darkened face and you can't see your expressions, there's just all kinds of things that we can really do to make a big difference in either the positive or the negative direction and experience for our students or for those that we're joining together to collaborate on a project of some kind. Those are my two recommendations. And Don, I'll pass it over to you for yours. Oh, your recommendations are amazing. Mine are going to be a lot less techy. I'm not very tech fluent myself. The recommendation I'm going to make, and this is easy and it's something I do all the time, is to thank your students. I'd mentioned this notion that the, the classroom is an oasis. It's a way to get away from all the other things, you know, the, the reviewer who savaged your manuscript or an impending grant deadline or the cranky kids at home or whatever. I thank them for that opportunity. So I'll come in and say, hey, you know, I want you to thank you for making the choice to come to class today. We have some amazing stuff that we're going to do together, and I'm so glad that you're here to share this with me. I'm glad that you created this opportunity away from all the other noise and chaos in my life. And if you do this often, and if you mean it, it resonates really well with the students. It changes the culture. It changes the climate. And what it does is I really think we have the best job in the world. It really reinforces that for me. Because... I know how it feels to be thanked, and I've never been thanked as a student. And when I first did this, I did this room with 200 people. There was a lot kind of going on in that time outside of the class for me. We had had a flood, and my basement was underwater, and my kids were cranky, and I was dealing with all kinds of things. And I came and I said, you know what? I'm just glad you're here. I'm glad that we get to do this together, and thank you so much for this experience. And they applauded. I was completely kind of flabbergasted by this, and I wasn't going for that reaction, but some students said, you know, we really felt like you cared. And I said, well, I do, and I care all the time, but sometimes that explicit recognition that you are providing me this opportunity. I'm at a Research One school, and without the undergraduate students in my class, there is no Research One school. Mm -hmm. Some people look at teaching as a necessary evil. It's something they've got to pay the price to do their research. No, it's the greatest thing that we do. My recommendation is appreciate that and tell your students that you appreciate that. What a perfect opportunity for me to say thank you to back right back to you, Don. Thank you for investing your time in this community today. It was such a joy to get to talk to you and to feel that contagion of your positivity about teaching. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. What a pleasure it was today to have the opportunity to speak with Don Saucier. He has lived up to his reputation, his teaching philosophy of this contagious passion for teaching, and I just love the ideas that he shared with us today. If you've been listening for a while and have not had the opportunity to subscribe to our weekly update, you'll receive the show notes with the links to all the things that were shared on today's episode or whatever episode it is, along with an article about teaching or productivity written by me. So if you'd like to subscribe, just go to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And if you have not shared with colleagues about the, the podcast in a while, maybe just share with them a little bit about what kinds of things get talked about in the episodes and invite them to join in on listening. Speaking of listening, thanks so much for doing that today, and I'll see you next time.